I think we should start um, because we have such a rich program with many esteemed speakers. So welcome to the second director seminar series and a third in a series of webinars that we examine the impact of COVID on the economy and earlier on maternal and child health. Tonight we examines the impact of COVID on mental health and how each country responds to it. And we are delighted to have three countries experience to be shared from China, from India, and also from the United States, but of course the global experience as well. We're very fortunate to have Professor Arthur Kleinman to chair the session. Um, Arthur doesn't need any introduction or the mental health that I have learned uh, as it relates to China, I learned it from Arthur. He's an anthropologist, psychiatrist, and a medical anthropologist. And I would say that many of the leading um, psychiatrists and also researchers in China are Arthur's students. Arthur has published extensively, but his uh, my favorite book uh, is The Soul of Care. So with that, I want to turn it to Arthur. Thank you. Thank you, Winnie. Um... It's a delight to put on this, see this program put on, and I, I commend the direct, the acting director of the Fairbanks Center for looking at this really important topic. I'm so excited by the panelists we have tonight, and let me just to uh, reduce the amount of time I spend, jump in and give them very quick introductions. These are not the detailed introductions they deserve. Uh, they're all outstanding. And let me begin with my colleague Vikram Patel, who is the Persian Square Professor of Global Mental Health in the Department of uh, Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Vikram is one of the great global psychiatrists. His career has been uh, partly in Africa, but largely in India. Uh, he's been a professor at the London School of uh, Tropical Health and Hygiene. He has been a uh, professor in India, and um, he has done a breakthrough work on uh, community interventions for mental health problems amongst poor people in India. And that work has been, has it had enormous impact around the world. Uh, let me also introduce uh, Shui Feng, Professor Shui Feng, who is uh, head director of the Shanghai Mental Health Center. Is, which is one of China's great centers for mental health. Professor Xu was also professor at Jiaotong University in Shanghai and is a leading figure in academic psychiatry in China. And next, uh, Professor Xiao Shuiyuan. Uh, professor Xiao is, uh, um, puts together both uh, mental health and public health in a big way. He is professor of psychiatry at the Shangya uh, uh, Medical School, the, the Yale and China Medical School at, at um, uh, Central South University, uh, which used to be Hunan University in uh, Changsha, in uh, Hunan, a province de dear to my heart. And uh, he is a, both a public health figure and a outstanding research psychiatrist. And he was the head, he's formerly the head of global health at, uh, at that university. Um, then we have uh, someone who I'm just getting to know, Cindy Liu, who is uh, a uh, professor at Harvard Medical School and directs a very interesting laboratory that tonight is the first time I've heard about it, 
which is the laboratory of developmental risk and cultural resilience at both Harvard Med uh, Medical School and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. So with that um, set of introductions, um, let me turn it to, uh, how do you want this to go now, uh, Winnie? Who, uh, who, who will, you're going to say some words before we start the panel. Uh, I was going to say that before we start, I just want to remind the participants that if you have questions, feel free to type it in the Q&A box and we'll try to get to that as much as possible towards the end. Right. And let me remind also the panelists that um, uh, you have seven to eight minutes. So uh, time is short. And uh, as we say, the art is long. So uh, good luck. And um, do we have a uh, who's, who's starting off first? Is it Vikram starting? Vikram, would you like to uh, key, start first? Of course, sure. Uh, uh, I'm happy to do so, uh, Arthur. Thank you. Um, so I, I'm going to speak specifically about India, but much of what I'm going to say actually probably applies to almost any other country, at least in South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. So even before the COVID-19 pandemic, mental health problems were a leading cause of suffering. Uh, at the India's National Mental Health Survey, roughly 10% of India's population, which is about 100 million people, were found to have a clinically significant mental health condition. Suicide was the leading cause of death in young Indians, and it's been that way for nearly 10 years now. And there was a profound level of discrimination and abuse of human rights uh, against people, particularly with serious mental health conditions and disabilities, including incarceration, uh, uh, torture even in some of these mental hospitals, and the denial of fundamental rights. Um, Despite a strong evidence of what works, the truth remains that over 90% of people in the National Mental Health Survey said that they had neither sought nor received any form of care uh, for their problem. And it's important to keep this mind in mind. It was both sought and not received. And I'll return back to that uh, in a moment. So really, it's, it's fair to say that if this was the situation before COVID, we need to remember there was a crisis of mental health care even before the pandemic hit India and many other countries around the world. And I believe that this time around, the crisis is going to be much worse. And I think there's good evidence as to why that might be the case. I see the mental health impact of the pandemic in India as having two very distinct phases. The first phase is the acute phase, which the country is still in at this point in time. I think we all know what that acute phase has done to each and every one of us. Uh, you know, the chronic unrelenting uncertainty um, that has befallen each and every one of us. And you know, the levels, the kinds of uncertainties will vary from one person to the other, but it would be fair to say that everyone faces some form of uncertainty. And I think we know well enough that uncertainty in short doses is actually essential for survival. But when uncertainty becomes a chronic, enduring and never ending kind of uncertainty, it begins to create uh, mental health problems. And so it isn't surprising that we see a rise in reporting of mental health distress across India, across many other developing countries. And in my mind, much of this should be seen in the form of this being a rational response of our minds to the extraordinary realities that we're all facing. What this means, I think, is that the population distribution of symptoms of distress have shifted, as it were, to the more unwell end of the spectrum. And if that is the case, then we would also expect to see a rise in clinically significant mental health conditions. And the only data I could find from South Asia comes from Bangladesh published last week, 
which was a nationwide survey, which reported a third of the adult population uh, having clinically significant depression, which is quite a staggering rate. There's also now evidence emerging from the region that uh, the care of people with serious mental illness has been profoundly disrupted uh, by the lockdown and containment policies uh, that the region had adopted. But it's the second phase, I think, of the pandemic, which is now emerging and is only gonna get worse in the months and years ahead. And that second phase is really the consequences of the pandemic on the economy. And we can already see this in India where more than 80% of people are daily wage laborers. And as a consequence of the lockdown, for example, almost all of them have had significant reductions in their income and in fact, huge increases in hunger and extreme poverty. And as Arthur ha has written quite extensively, including with me, we know that there is a strong association between uh, a range of indicators of social deprivation, unemployment, acute indebtedness, and so on with poor mental health. In the US alone, after the financial crisis of 2008, Angus Deaton and Anne Case, for example, documented that the fall in life expectancy in working age Americans was entirely driven by suicide and substance use. And so I do worry greatly about the consequences uh, in India going forward. I also want to point out before I turn to the solution that actually um, this is not affecting everyone in a, uh, evenly as one might expect. Low income populations, people with pre-existing mental health conditions, young people and women are very important vulnerable groups that have been extremely uh, disproportionately affected. And we can talk about that uh, in, in the Q&A. Now, it's important to remember that these large gaps in care are not simply due to supply side barriers, which is usually what we think they are. I think it's important to acknowledge there is a rich ethnographic literature from India and actually I'd say across the developing world that shows that people with depression, anxiety and other common mental health conditions rarely seek care, even when it is actually available just up the road. And so I think this also interrogates and questions the use of very narrow biomedical models. Of course, Arthur Kleinman has written so extensively about that. And so I think one has to acknowledge that there are both supply side barriers in the form of the lack of uh, mental health professionals, but also demand side barriers. I want to end by looking at some of the innovative solutions for this. Now, there's no doubt that um, uh, in India in the last six months, there's been a transformation in the use of digital platforms, particularly telemedicine, uh, for addressing mental health care. Unfortunately, I mean, while I, while I think that's great, uh, unfortunately, of course, it only uh, widens the digital divide because you know huge, huge sections of India's people do not have access to the internet uh, uh, or good good enough internet to have uh, you know real time uh, telemedicine. Still. One must welcome this development because you know, clearly it adds a new weapon, as it were, to improve access to care. Uh, and also it highlights the importance of psychotherapy, which is you know, typically in India has been very undervalued. Uh, you can't deliver medicines on, on telemedicine. And so suddenly psychotherapy has become much more widely accepted. But I think what India has really done uh, as an innovation has been the demonstration of the use of community health workers for the delivery of mental health interventions. In fact, before mental health interventions, the delivery of health interventions for mothers, children, infectious diseases, etc. And what we've been able to do in our own community lab in India with Sangat is to demonstrate how these principles of, uh, of, of simplifying interventions, training health workers using a competency framework, and having support and supervision that follows are highly effective for, in, uh, for delivering mental health interventions. And in many ways, I, I think this has redefined the who, the what, the how, and where mental health care 
has delivered, it's not only addressed the supply side barrier, but also the demand side barrier, because the care that they deliver is actually completely uh, embedded within metaphors and language and concepts that the community sees mental health problems through. More recently, we've started using digital platforms for scaling up these interventions, digital platforms to train frontline workers and to support their delivery of mental health care uh, through the Empower platform. I know we are out of time, so I'm just going to end uh, by saying that, uh, you know, I think this is a really historic opportunity to reimagine uh, the approaches that we've had on mental health care, which in India has been dominated by the three Ds doctors, diagnoses, and drugs. And I think this is an approach that not only isn't scalable because there are supply side barriers, but actually there are huge demand side barriers. People don't necessarily actually want only that one approach to mental health care. And so I think while we do need to call for more investments, and let's make no mistake that actually there are currently threats to investing in mental health, even though there's so much conversation about mental health, as far as I can tell, there's very little new money that is going to mental health. All the money is devoted to vaccines and therapeutics for COVID. And I think we need to bear in mind this enormous new threat. In fact, Arthur Kleinman and I remember very well in 1998 at the World Bank, there was this huge interest in mental health and then the AIDS pandemic uh, overtook everything and mental health was pushed back in the shadows. And we have to be very, very mindful that COVID-19 could do exactly the same for mental health as AIDS did 20 years ago. Nevertheless, even if we did get new money, I think it's really important not to invest simply in more of the traditional mental health care system, but we need to scale up the science, uh, which really demonstrates the need to embrace the diversity of experiences of mental health problems before beyond narrow diagnostic categories and interventions to address these problems beyond narrow clinically defined interventions. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you, Vikram. Let's turn now to uh, China. And uh, let me begin with uh, Professor Shao, uh, if you will start. Uh, you have the for good fortune in China now of, of having many just reduced cases and having excellent control. So we go from India, which is like the US with a huge spike in cases to China, which has controlled its cases fantastically well and is in a totally different situation. Professor Shao. Yes, thank you. And uh, we also have paid uh, a great price for that. I will um, talk two things. The first one is, uh, let's see, uh, mental health problems of COVID-19-related population. We, uh, I will introduce four representative uh, studies, and then I will very briefly introduce the policies to improve mental health of people influenced by COVID-19 in China. Now, the first, first mental health problems of COVID-19 related populations. Um, until now, uh, to my knowledge, there are more than uh, 20 studies published on Chinese or uh, English academic journals. Most of uh, uh, these studies were uh, cross-sectional online studies. So that means the, uh, the, um, they are some kind of methodological uh, problems. Most studies reported a high 
uh, prevalence of depressive and uh, anxiety symptoms. No of these studies made diagnosis of mental disorders. And severe mental and uh, health problems, such as dom uh, uh, domestic violent behaviors, suicide behaviors, were reported extensively on mass media, but not uh, uh, systematically investigated. And also, the influence of uh, exposure to COVID-19-related stress, such as uh, lost, uh, loss of a, a family member to be isolated, and the loss of freedom, uh, loss of jobs, and uh, decreased income, uh, also divided uh, over the uh, uh, beliefs, attitudes about COVID-19-related uh, themes such as um, the uh, uh, traditional Chinese medicine and the uh, modern Western medicine, and um, and uh, how the um, um, policy employed to against COVID nineteen. Also, this kind of things has not been um, scientifically investigated. Now I will introduce the whole uh, selected studies. The first one, um, I think, let me see, was um, published on the uh, uh, psychiatric research. And, and the authors uh, investigated over 7,000 uh, people online. Uh, the the uh, general uh, public they use uh, uh, they studied the quality of sleep, um, COVID nineteen related knowledge, uh, generalized anxiety disorder, and uh, the uh, and depressive symptoms used as CESD, and they and they um, report. 35% of people with uh, anxiety and uh, more than 20% of people with depressive symptoms. Uh, about 20% of the uh, uh, participants report the uh, uh, poor uh, sleep quality. The second study was focused on uh, Healthcare workers exposed, exposed, sorry, to COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen. They also use the um, uh, Chinese versions of uh, Chinese version of the uh, nine I ten um, PHQ, the uh, GAD seven, and the Yasonia uh, severity index, and also uh, the uh, impact of event scale. Revised. The result of this study was published on the JAMA network open. Overall, more than half of uh, uh, participants report, report symptoms of depression. 45% uh, reported anxiety, and uh, more than 70% of participants of healthcare workers exposure to COVID-19 reported 
and Sonia. So this is a um, indicated there are serious problems or uh, mental health problems of healthcare workers exposure to COVID-19. So this is uh, their main uh, uh, results, the main, main results of the study. And the third study is um, um, about the patients with COVID, uh, a patient about COVID-19, uh, they uh, uh, stable patients, they started 770 uh, stable patients. And uh, the uh, overall finding that the uh, prevalence of depression was more than 40%. Uh, this is the uh, main, main results of the study. And the final example I'd like to uh, present is uh, a study uh, on adolescent. They also uh, the authors also used uh, a um, used the um, uh, PHQ9 and the GAD7 to do a uh, online survey. Uh, more than eight thousand. Uh, Adolescents participated study and the prevalence of depression symptoms, anxiety symptoms, and the combination uh, combination of depression and anxiety symptoms was seventy three point forty three point seven percent, thirty one point sorry. Okay, let me see. Um, thirty-seven point four percent and thirty-one point three percent respectively. So uh, this represents a very high um, mental health problems among uh, the general adolescent. Uh, these are main um, results of the study, and the 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 study was publisher of the uh, European Child and uh, Adolescent Psychiatry. Shreyu, and just take another couple of minutes if you don't mind. To... Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, um, uh, I actually I just uh, about to finish because of the time. Um, the second part, we have um, conducted a uh, Systematic review on the mental health policies related to all uh, to the outbreak of COVID nineteen in uh, China. Um, we uh, found a total of seven uh, thirty seven policies. We identified uh, thirty seven policies altogether. Among them, uh, 19 were released by the national uh, Chinese government, and uh, they, uh, 19 reported data on uh, implementation of these mental health policies. They um, targeted populations, uh, covered, they covered the 19 patients, suspected the cases, medical staff, uh, the general, uh, uh, the general public, so, sorry, the general population, uh, patients with mental illness, 
and uh, uh, mental institutions. In the early stage of the uh, uh, COVID-19 epidemic, attention was paid to psychological uh, crisis intervention. In the late stage of the epidemic, the government focused mainly on psycho, uh, psychological rehabilitation. The major challenges to our, long, uh, to our opinion is the low rate of mental health service utilization and the lack of rigorous evaluation of policy effects. Um, the um, systematic, this has, uh, systematic review uh, has been submitted to the uh, volunteer in psychiatry. Uh, hopefully it will be published uh, very soon. Thank you, Shui Yuan. So this is, uh, this is my report. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Uh, and now we turn to uh, Professor Shu Yifang. Yifang, please. Thank you. I'm more than happy to share some considerations on this topic. My reflection on mental health-related issues during the COVID-19 pandemic in China, based on our clinical experience and my management role at my center is that the issues have been a serious public concern in the Chinese society. Published articles suggest that the symptoms of anxiety and depression and self-reported stress are common psychological reactions to the COVID-19 pandemic and may be associated with disturbed sleep. Subsyndromal uh, mental health problems are common response to the COVID-19. Support for mental and psychosocial well-being during COVID-19 outbreak has been far from sufficient. And a number of individual and, and the uh, uh, structural variables moderate this risk. In planning services for such populations, both the needs of the concerned people and the necessary preventive guidelines must be taken into account. Chinese mental health institutes and researchers in this field have conducted a few studies on mental health issues related to COVID-19 and made them published either in Chinese or in English. Evidence from China consistently suggests that the outbreak of COVID-19 has caused various mental issues among different populations across the country. For example, according to a nationwide online survey of more than 50,000 participants conducted by my research team at our center, the uh, implementation of unprecedented strict quarantine measures in China, variety of psychological problems, such as panic disorders, anxiety and depression. With the finding of the, uh, this study, Shanghai Mental Health Center has actively advocated more attention to mental health of all populations from the very beginning of outbreak. Some studies 
from Wuhan, China, also revealed that frontline healthcare workers engaged in direct diagnosis, treatment, and care of patients with COVID-19 were associated with a higher risk of symptoms of depression, anxiety, insomnia, and distress, which highlights the fact that protecting healthcare workers is an important component of public health measures for addressing the COVID-19 epidemic. Internationally, a recent manuscript inquiry to me, uh, editor-in-chief of the General Psychiatry from University College London, hospitals reported the findings of over 1,000 healthcare workers demonstrating increased level of psychological distress and burnout early, early on in the pandemic, irrespective of role. The authors have also identified at-risk groups such as those who are younger, female, and those exposed to morally distressing situations. In terms of the uh, consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic on mental health among patients with COVID-19, Chinese researchers have found that patients who are suffering and or uh, other physical diseases have been also struggling for their psychological well-being. Furthermore, the Chinese literature suggests that psychological intervention can be effective for those people who have COVID-19. Given comprehensive research findings and discussions among mental health professionals in China, I very much would like to suggest that following recommendations for coping with mental health issues emerging in the COVID-19 outbreak. First, nationwide strategic planning and coordination for psychological first aid during major disasters such as this pandemic, potentially delivered through telemedicine should be established. Second, a comprehensive crisis prevention and intervention system including epidemiological monitoring, screening, referral, and a targeted intervention should be built up to reduce psychological distress and prevent further mental health problems. Third, accessibility to medical resources and the mental health service system should be further strengthened and improved, particularly after reviewing the initial coping and management of the COVID-19 epidemic. Fourth, more attention need, needs to be paid to mental health, especially in vulnerable groups such as the young students, the aged people, women medical practitioners, migrant workers, physically or mentally disabled. Fifth, active collaboration with the World Health Organization and other international mental health agencies, and the more international cooperation and communication among mental health facilities and professionals across the world are needed in order to better deal with public health emergency of international concern. By implementing those recommendations, I feel confident that we can not only tackle the aforementioned 
issues which we are facing right now, but also we can be well prepared for next major challenges which we should encounter in the near future. Thank you very much. Thank you, Shui Feng, for that. And now let's turn to our last speaker, Cindy Liu, for a view from the US. Cindy. Great, thank you. Hopefully everyone can see this. I'll just put this in the slideshow mode. Um, you know, so thank you so much for having me on this panel. I'm gonna speak about the US and what we've been seeing here in the States. Um, so I should preface this first, um, that uh, of course mental health is an issue in the US, one out of five individuals um, uh, um, have mental illness. This is uh, during pre-pandemic conditions and this, What's startling is that um, among the youth, the suicide rate has um, increased very dramatically over um, the past 10 years. And so these have been areas of major concern. Um, and then of course we have the pandemic. Um, in the US, we declared the pandemic to be a national emergency, um, March 13th. And so what you see here um, is, um, uh, population level data um, collected by the US Census Bureau from April um, until relatively recently. Um, and I'm just showing here anxiety symptoms, but what you see is that there's about 30 to 35% uh, percent, um, individuals who are reporting um, significant anxiety symptoms. Um, and then you also see too that there's a break here. <laughs> the census took a break in the data collection, but then they resumed again and it, it came down somewhat. Um, and, and I think the big question is, is it going to stay that way? Is it going to rise? Um, and uh, so, so we don't know that, um, nor do we know sort of the other impacts that these uh, particular symptoms might have. Um, I also wanted to demonstrate here that while this red line is, um, you know, uh, encompasses all different ages, here you see that age is actually really correlated um, with uh, the prevalence. So um, individuals who are younger, 18 to 29, are here uh, represented in the uh, red line, and below here, pretty in a systematic fashion are of uh, the, the older um, US um, uh, people in the US. And so um, they are reporting lower levels of anxiety. When thinking about the US, we, we can't really just think about the pandemic. There is also a number of major events that have happened. Of course, you all know about our election from the past year, but um, many other things may have accounted for the um, mental health rates. So, um, we saw police brutality protests occurring at the uh, beginning of June that lasted for a number of weeks. Um, you know, that took place in between um, all the cases that were rising. And then as well, um, our school year began um, around August and September. And so, um, as you can see here, it, it starts up again. And um, we have to take these into account because these are the things that um, individuals are reporting as having an effect on their mental health. Um, and so you see here, uh, this is for depression, that the rates are slightly lower than anxiety, but still the similar trend of somewhat of a rise over April to July. And then um, you see um, what, seem, what might be a rise. Um, we have yet to really determine that from August until October and similar um, differences by age. So I mentioned 
um, these various events in the US because I think it sets us apart from the different countries um, because what's been happening so far in the, pa in the past year has just been, um, uh, I would say you could call it unique or just um, these pivotal events that, that um, are, are taking place and affecting individuals. And you'll see here that when we think about um, um, the U.S., we want to think about the, the U.S. As, a, as not a homogeneous group. There are different groups, and um, they are um, differentially um, impacted by um, these events. So um, we see here a spike um, for uh, Black individuals right around May. Um, as well, we see that in Asians. Um, so these are just some, um, I would say, some evidence suggesting that we really need to take into consideration the different groups um, that we have here in the U.S. Um, try to... Um, some of my work has documented um, the distress levels across different groups. I have a study on young adults um, between the ages of 18 to 30, and in this study, um, the rates of depression, generalized anxiety, and PTSD are um, somewhat consistent with what we're seeing from the, um, the U.S. Uh, census data. And actually, we use very similar measures to, um, um, to the data that was described um, in the, in the um, presentation on, on China. Um, and we also see, too, um, elevated rates of depression, anxiety, and PTSD in pregnant and postpartum women. Um, again, another vulnerable um, population. Um, when you look at these rates relative to the other studies on COVID, what we see is that um, depression seems to be elevated. Um, anxiety is not as um, heightened. Um, but then if you look across the two groups, um, you do see that the young adults are showing, um, uh, reporting uh, higher levels of distress. Um, we've also collected some qualitative data to, which has really helped us to understand and provide some context of these numbers. Um, with young adults, we see that um, the, their finances are a major issue um, as well. Um, um, you know, their futures, they're concerned about their future. They're also concerned about the future of the, the country. Um, and not only that, but they also have shared about um, their relationships with family. Um, and it's tied up with um, you know, what's happening now. So it's tied up with um, the pandemic. It's also tied up with politics. And um, I think all of this just demonstrates that there are, when we think about the pandemic, we have to think about it from a political, economic, and social perspective, because that is the lived experience of, of the individuals here in the US. Another vulnerable, vulnerable group um, are those who have a pre-existing mental health diagnosis. And um, in, in our work, we did collect data on um, individuals who reported that uh, whether or not they've had a diagnosis. And in fact, we asked them whether or not they had a diagnosis that was treated, not treated, or suspected. Um, and what we find is that um, uh, there's a higher proportion of these individuals who are reporting um, clinically elevated rates of depression, anxiety, and PTSD, which shouldn't be a surprise. Obviously, they are a more vulnerable group, but um, we do see that the extent of it is quite high. And so they're reporting um, at least two to almost six times as high um, of a likelihood in um, uh, these clinical, clinically elevated depression, anxiety, and PTSD. So what is it that the US is doing? Um, I, one thing I wanted to notice that um, what was somewhat remarkable was that telehealth um, really changed overnight. Um, 
within uh, healthcare. And so in, in the past, it was not as readily uh, adopted due in part to government regulations, um, reimbursements, um, as one example. Um, but when COVID um, you know, occurred here in the US, it changed dramatically. If you look at the orange on the left, that's the proportion of those who um, did not use telehealth. Um, um, before the pandemic. And then on the right, you'll see that the blue represents those who have started to use telehealth um, after the pandemic. So a large majority at 85%. So telehealth is a major, um, I would say major strategy to address mental health. Um, it's certainly not the um, only strategy, but um, it's one that uh, we have definitely seen uh, within our medical centers. And this is a paper um, published by my colleague, um, Justin Chen at MGH, who um, talks about sort of the, the pros and cons of uh, telepsychiatry. Um, I would like to just note that one of the um, benefits to telepsychiatry is access, that it can provide access to those who may have um, faced barriers, um, including transportation um, and scheduling concerns. On the other hand, there are some um, things that we need to take into account when considering the diverse um, population. And one is that um, while you know it may grant access, um, some people don't have internet or stable connectivity. And so that would be a major issue that would uh, keep them from being able to pursue or continue with care. Um, on the provider end, um, being able to interact with somebody um, over Zoom while we're getting used to that now um, still may be challenging, especially in a clinical setting where um, reading nonverbal cues is really key. Cindy, um, you just take a minute or two yeah. for us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is the last slide. Um, and um, so, so, so the thing is, telepsychiatry is here. I think telehealth is here to stay. Um, I think there are a lot of um, issues that need to be ironed out. Um, but uh, you know, question is whether or not it can be reached um, and scaled to all different um, individuals. Um, so that's all that I have, thanks. Great. Well, thank you all for, Cindy, thank you for that. Thank you to uh, uh, Professor uh, uh, Shu, Professor um, uh, Shao Shiryuan, uh, to Professor Patel and uh, Professor Liu. Um, let's ask some questions now. I know that Win uh, Winnie has uh, several, um, be, before Winnie begins uh, with some questions, um, let me just say that what I'd like us also to do is reflect on populations where we may not have data, but we have observations. So it's early in the course of things. So when, after Winnie goes, I'm going to come back to questions about what have we seen in the air, since we know that the SARS-CoV-2 uh, uh, affects the brain. What have we seen in the areas of, um, of uh, confusional states, delir deliriums, and psychoses created acutely by the virus itself? Secondly, what's the impact on people with serious chronic mental disorders, um, whether they've had the disorder or whether it's the threat of the, of the disorder? So we'll come back to some questions like that. Winnie, why don't you, why don't you begin? Uh, so thank you all the panelists for a very um, rich presentation. Um, I have a question. All three of you pointed to the use of telehealth as the way to provide care during the pandemic. And I think all of you are uh, making reference that telehealth would probably stay 
And the question is, to what extent it become mainstream service, part of the mainstream service. The set of questions that I have related to telehealth is, what is being done to train up the medical providers to provide mental health through telehealth? And related to that question is, how is quality of care assured? And in your country, what are the um, financial burden for people accessing mental health or is that covered by insurance? And if you can shed light a little bit on that. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is at the end, do different countries have generalizable lessons that you can learn from each other or are they very localized? Thanks. Okay. Let's, let's start with Vikram. You want to handle that first? Yeah, it's easy for me to answer this, Winnie. There are no uh, there are no rules on telemedicine. The whole thing is it's an industry that began six months ago with the pandemic. No, there was no telemedicine in India before this. There was for some areas of medicine like ophthalmology, uh, but you know, in mental health, there were a couple of NGOs, not for profits, working in the community that were using telemedicine for continuing care for serious mental illness. But the scale that we've seen in the last six months is, is, is a quantum shift. And also the care has not been focused by for, for, for serious mental illness. It's now actually become a counseling platform. People mm. logging in and asking for, for, for counseling support for you know, mood and anxiety problems. So insurance definitely doesn't cover it. And for the overwhelming majority, it's a fee for, it's a cash, uh, you know, your cash for service. Uh, you have to pay with a credit card and uh, you know, by session. So it's 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 like a private practice, except that you know now everything's become digital uh, for delivery. In Hunan, what what's happening? You're muted. You're muted, Professor Shah. I have not conducted conducted a study on the use of mental health service during the period of COVID nineteen pandemic, but we um, have uh, we, we have been doing research on the influence of um, COVID-19 on the um, prevention of tuberculosis in uh, Funan province. And uh, during uh, the time of the epidemic, all, almost all um, uh, community uh, uh, tuberculosis prevention and the control stations were well closed. Um, patients cannot get uh, treatment, cannot be diagnosed, and uh, probably some of them lost of their life during the um, the COVID-19 period. So we are strong. We are have a uh, relatively comprehensive report on the uh, influence of um, COVID-19 to the um, uh, tuberculosis control system in Funan province. And um, I don't know if we could publish all data or not, but hopefully um, our hypothesis is that the, the Chinese way of control COVID-19 has serious damage the um, um, tuberculosis control system. I think the mental health care system also has been greatly influenced because of the um, 
uh, close of uh, hospital clinics and um, because of the more stigma, more stigmatization of the mental health problem, uh, people with mental health problems uh, during the period of uh, the uh, COVID-19. And uh, I think Professor Xu, we have more about the uh, Taylor uh, mental health care in China because he is the director of the Shanghai Mental Health Center. Thank you. Great, thank you, Dr. Sha. Professor Xu, Xu Yifang, what, um, what have you learned about the relevant to telemedicine, telepsychiatry, mental health care? Yeah, the simple answer is yes, we do have the uh, telemedicine, telepsychiatry. Uh, it's long before the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, because uh, the government put much emphasis, you know, on the uh, uh, internet, Plus service, uh, just before you know, uh, in the uh, last ten years, so uh, we we do prepare for this. Uh, in fact, the outpatient visits uh, during the uh, lockdown uh, is severely impacted. Uh, take my hospital for instance. Uh, we have uh, a reduction of more than thirty to forty in February and March. 30 to 40. Uh, only, yeah, in, uh, uh, reduction of outpatient service visit, outpatient visit. Uh, only in September, we, we surpassed the number uh, compared uh, with last year. So you can see the uh, inference. Plus we have uh, uh, a lot of more than 30% uh, outpatient visits from outside Shanghai. But during the lockdown and the quarantine, they, they couldn't get to, got to Shanghai. So, so we, we lost this part of patients. Yeah, uh, so we developed uh, various uh, uh, manners of uh, telemedicine like uh, apps on uh, smartphone or internet service. Yeah, in fact, the, uh, our hospital was accredited as uh, uh, Internet plus Shanghai Mental Health Center. It's uh, accreditation by the uh, government, you know. Uh, so we could uh, provide online service for those uh, 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 patients with no relapse, just uh, for prescription, you know. Uh, so it's, it's an easy way to give them service, and it's uh, the medications are delivered uh, by the like UPS, something like that, you know, delivery services. Right, right, right. Thank you, Shri uh, yeah. And now, uh, do, do you want to say something, uh, Cindy, about, uh, you've already said a bit about uh, telescratcher. Anything else to add? Yeah, I mean, I think the major concern is that um, the the relaxed regulations for telepsychiatry, and there's some concern that it's actually going to get revoked. So it's really just unclear whether or not um, the fact that it can happen now, whether it will continue into the future. Okay, so let me, uh, uh, Winnie, if you'll let me uh, now ask some questions. Let's get back to the question I had, which was, how about the chronic mentally ill? Now that's, we look in the United States, that really is the gist of our problem in mental health. The, we have no system for the chronically mentally ill. They're often in the streets or in the prisons. 
Um, uh, we know that they have been affected by this. What do we know about the chronically mentally ill in India, uh, Vikram? Well, unfortunately, not a lot, uh, uh, Arthur. You know, at the moment, there is very little on the ground documentation of what uh, our colleague from China referred to, which is the disruption, uh, the effect of the disruption of uh, routine mental health care uh, on the outcomes of people with enduring mental health problems like schizophrenia. Uh, we have absolutely no information at all. We have a lot of anecdotal information from practitioners who say a number of their patients with bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, intellectual disability, et cetera, have had dramatic deteriorations or relapses. There's also early indications that suicide rates have increased and that a significant number of the individuals who've ended their lives had a serious mental illness and had relapsed. So at the moment, it's all anecdotal. But I want to just say briefly, if you'd allow me, that in the next few weeks, the largest study of this question has, is, is going to be published. Uh, it's important because I think it also speaks to what will be happening in other countries. It's a, a, a US study involving the electronic health records of 61 million adult patients, 61 million adult patients. Um, and it basically shows that people with a diagnosis of schizophrenia had a sevenfold increased risk of uh, acquiring COVID-19, um, sevenfold increased risk of acquiring compared to people without schizophrenia. And when they acquired uh, COVID-19, they died at double the rate. Uh, of those without. So this is going to change all, you know, the conversations about mental health will be transformed because it will demonstrate again that people with mental health problems are more susceptible to suffer yeah. medical diseases and to die from them. Yes, yes. I think this is uh, critical to, 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 for us to focus on. Uh, 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 Shui Fang, what about at uh, Shanghai Jinsung Weisheng Zhengxing at your at your hospital, what's the, uh, what was the observations, even if there are no studies, of what's happening to the chronically mental, mentally ill? Uh, because we don't have uh, patients uh, comorbid with COVID-19 and mental health, uh, illness. So I, I, it's hard for me to tell, you know, how serious uh, this problem is. You what know? about our, so, outpatients? What about the outpatients? Uh, yeah, okay, so far so good, you know. Uh, no, because they, they are in Shanghai, so they, they have uh, enough supply of uh, drugs and outpatient visits is allowed, you know, no lockdown locally, yeah. Okay. Xiaoxuiyuan, uh, any, any observations from uh, Changsha? Yeah, um, um, we have no um, uh, scientific data about that, but uh, to my knowledge, some, uh, a manual for patients with uh, um, colonic mental illness has no access to uh, uh, to drugs, to uh, um, to doctors. Um, uh, I think from the uh, uh, from uh, February to March, and after that, as uh, uh, psychiatric clinics um, open to service, they can get access to uh, treatment. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, telehealth and that kind of crisis intervention, psychological, psychosocial um, uh, support, uh, you say uh, based on, on the internet, based on the telephone, um, available during that time. Okay, okay. Yeah. 
Sure, and, and let, let me just stay with Chair Yuan and Shu uh, Yifeng for a minute. Um, what, what do you, you, you are in close touch with colleagues in Wuhan. Wuhan had the most severe, and, and Hubei had the most severe uh, uh, shutdown. What has been the consequences of the shutdown, that severe shutdown for people with mental health problems? Any observations from uh, your colleagues in Wuhan? Yeah. There is a paper uh, that described the situation uh, in Wuhan when they locked down. They do have people uh, suffered from mental health, have difficulties to the access of facility as well as to the medicine, medication. Yes. So, so it's, it's that, yeah. it's, that it's, a published, it's a published paper. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, you went to that. Yeah. At that time in Wuhan, although um, um, nearly 500 psychiatrists are sent to Wuhan, but they are only they were only responsible for the um, um, patients with both COVID-19 and mental illness. I see. Yeah, so it's not just the mentally ill, but also on the patients with cancer with cardiovascular diseases, all these kind of things. Right. They are, yeah, they're influenced. Yeah, and, and, and let me ask now, anyone can respond to this. What about the question I raised about the, what, what do we ob observe uh, cross-nationally on the acute uh, effects of COVID on the brain, of the of SARS-CoV-2 on the brain and, uh, and, and acute states like confusional states, delirium, um, acute uh, reactive psychosis. Well, any any comments on that? No. Yifeng, have you seen any of that? No, I I heard that some some of the people were lost taste, lost their smell, but I I myself never see such kind of patients. I'm okay. sorry. Any reports from India on that, Vikram? Uh, yes, I mean, there have been these cases of delirium, but I think most of them have been attributed to metabolic and physiological results of severe COVID-19 infection, for example, hypoxemia and so yes. on. So I haven't seen an encephalopathic uh, kind of delirium described in the literature from India. Uh, one thing is true that there is, there are descriptions now of this kind of post syndrome fatigue condition. And of course, uh, Arthur, you yourself have been very involved with this. So maybe you yeah. should, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I've been reading about these and I wonder to what extent were these a modern day equivalent of the kinds of fatigue syndromes that were often described in the eighties after very similar flu-like conditions. Yeah, well, I would, I would recommend that all of you look at this topic because um, uh, this is where chronic fatigue syndrome really got its, its start. In, in post-viral, usually post-flu uh, situations, uh, where there's a, there are people who are who have the long-term effects. Not everyone, but some have the long-term effects, often around exhaustion, uh, sleep disturbances, and the things we associate with uh, with chronic fatigue. Thank you for making that point, Vikram. Cindy, do you want to add anything on this uh, on the acute? Uh, I'm sure you've been reading the literature closely. What what's happening in the U.S. So, um, so anecdotal um, at this point, um, but I think the mechanism is due in part to the infection and inflammation and it 
as you were just talking, it made me think more about just um, some of the work in other major uh, natural events um, that have led to infection or maternal infection and risk to offspring. And so we think that's another area of concern too, um, when we think about women who may be um, pregnant and who have COVID. Um, on one hand, there doesn't seem to be any evidence of vertical transmission to the um, developing fetus or to the, um, to, to, the, to the infant at that point, but question of whether or not the infection itself may have some um, downstream effects later on in terms of the child's development. So that's something that I'm, I'm keeping my eyes for given the prior work on. Um, great. That's great, that's, that's great. Um, I'm also wondering if, uh, from all of you, uh, and I think Win uh, Winnie had suggested this. Um, what's going to be, and, and let's move away from sort of telepsychiatry, telemedicine, to the bigger question of what, what do you think, just based on your understanding of the local scene, are gonna be the, the long-term effects of, uh, of this pandemic on uh, your societies? Is it going to increase attention to mental health problems? Will you, do you think it's going to have a significant effect on uh, the way psychiatry is practiced? Is it going to, um, or is it just going to be a transient uh, effect that will disappear after the pandemic uh, disappears? Let's start with Vikram. Vikram, what's your sense? So I can just predict, you know, I think that it's going to create a much greater demand for mental health care, uh, because also it's important to remember we're starting from a very, very low level. Uh, so, I mean, it can't get any worse. I, I think it will get, there will be more demand. I think there will be a change in the way mental health care is conceptualized beyond, as I said, a very narrow biomedical model, because the whole telemedicine approach itself actually is a departure from a very narrow clinical model. And so I think that's become much more widely accepted. Uh, and in my own work, for example, there is now a very strong demand from governments to translate our work with community health workers to take it to scale, which I would not have expected six months ago, this demand coming from the state rather than us going constantly to the state. So I think that is, a, that is another reflection uh, of demand from policymakers. Shashua what, Yuen, what, what, what do you see in Hunan? Do you, what do you think are gonna be the long-term consequences for uh, Changsha, Hunan? Are you muted? Um, what I am concerning it's the uh, more serious mental health problems related to COVID-19, not the uh, general anxiety, depressive symptoms. That is the um, kind of uh, suicide, domestic, uh, avoidance of behavior, and the um, uh, damaged relationship between family members and all these kind of things. So this kind of uh, um, phenomena has not been uh, scientifically studied at now. And I also like to say that the Chinese government um, has um, really uh, focused on mental health problems during the uh, period of COVID-19, as I reported, the uh, 37 policies well, at least uh, released in yeah, a very short time to uh, improve, uh, to try to improve the mental health of, of people. I, I think I see a, a, a very bright future of mental health service in China in the 
recent years. The government even went to uh, even ask for screening depletion symptoms among the general public. Thank you. Thank you. Cindy, what about you? What do you what do you think is going to be happening in the US? Yeah, well, I think the pandemic has perhaps put a dent into stigma. So um, as a result, people are just more aware of it and thus driving the demand for services. I think my concern is the burden of the providers right now because they are just so flooded and they are really trying to minimize wait times and it's very, very challenging. Um, on the other hand, I think I'm hopeful because of this awareness. I think a lot of it is taken up by young people um, and just anecdotally just seeing um, them being more facile with talking about mental health and wanting to be in the mental health profession, I think that's helpful. Of course, the need is immediate, but over time, I'm hopeful that there'll be some way that um, services can be provided um, at a larger scale. Those are really interesting points. So let, let me take one of them to, the, to our colleagues from abroad. Vikram, what about stigma? You think stigma is going to be affected by uh, COVID-19? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I see the same thing, uh, what Cindy described. I think definitely, you know, just I'll give you one very, uh, you know, hard metric, which is the way the media has described mental health. I have, I think by and large, it's been incredibly sympathetic, compassionate. Um, uh, and I think it's completely opposite to some of the mixed messaging that the media had about mental illness, you know, the crazy guy and the lunatic and the killer, et cetera. Actually, I've not seen any of that. So I think if that's one metric of the change in public understanding of mental health and mental illness, you know, I think it's, it is a big shift um, in, in attitudes. How about our Chinese colleagues? Uh, what do you, what, what is your, uh, Shui Fang, what's your view of stigma? You think uh, stigma of mental illness in China will be affected by what's happened in COVID-19? Yeah, I think so. You know, uh, just like the uh, 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 the the affected. Uh, sorry, the 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 contagious, you know, diseases. Just like the mental health problems, you know, often compose a threat to other people. You know, so it will still maintain high uh, high prevalence of uh, stigma, I think. Okay. Uh, Shreyuan, what, what about your view? What's your view of this? Uh, having the chance to look at both tuberculosis and mental health, you see mental health problems becoming less stigmatized? Um, I, um, I think so, um, because um, the awareness of mental health problems in, in, in China during this time are uh, actually raised, I think. More people are, are more concerned with the, uh, um, more aware of uh, mental health problems. And also uh, the younger generation, they are not fear to talk about depression, uh, bipolar, but not schizophrenia at, at the moment, but they're very free to talk about suicide, talk about um, uh, depression and bipolar disorders. Yeah, important to make that kind of distinction. I, I, I think that's very important. Um, Winnie, would you like to ask a question or make a statement at this point? Um, I, um, I organize these seminars with the hope that um, people, scholars from different countries, from the US, China, and globally, 
um, would uh, work together and collaborate more. In this area, where do you see will be fruitful areas of collaboration? I'd like to hear from each one of you just uh, comment on that. So maybe I'll go first, Winnie, because I actually had the pleasure of working very closely with Professor Xiao, uh, and he will remember well, we actually had a India-China uh, yes. Mental Health Alliance, uh, which yeah. was funded by the China Medical Board. Yes. And, mm -hmm. you know, there were, there was a very interesting uh, model, actually. There were a series of different uh, priority areas that the Chinese and Indian colleagues decided together. Uh, they were, they were uh, supported by people like Arthur Kleinman from Harvard. And so we had mentors who were friends of both countries, as it were. Um, and basically, we produced a series of articles that were published in The Lancet. And our hope had been that each of those would actually be the basis, the foundation of work. And somehow that hasn't happened. And that's, my, that's disappointing for me, but, it did, it, but we did manage to produce a series of really high quality pieces and Professor Klein will remember those, uh, but we were mm. not able to go beyond that into an area of work. And I'd love to hear from my colleagues in China, you know, mm. their thoughts on how that might happen. Raymond, what do you think? What do you think? More collaboration in the future? Of course, it's, uh, um, it's my great pleasure to uh, work with Vikram before. And uh, of course, with uh, also Professor Yip and uh, uh, Professor Klaman is my mentor, has been my mentor for a long time. So it's my pleasure. Uh, Shui Fan, what do you think? What do you think is going to yeah, be? Yeah, of course. I think uh, there will be much more collaboration between different countries. In fact, we already have several, you know, uh, online conferences with our colleagues in Canada, uh, in King's College London, and uh, uh, in German, uh, Germany, yeah, and so on. So you, you see, we have the common themes. Yeah, we have the common interest about the human uh, humanity. Uh, we, we, we don't need to apply for visa, you know, it's much cheaper and it's friendly, uh, to, it's friendly <laughs> to environment, so why not? Yeah, so there's a good example of tele, instead of telemedicine, this is teleconferencing as a yeah, sure. outcome of COVID. I, I agree entirely, I agree entirely. I think you're gonna see many fewer lecturers traveling long distance and much more of this kind of engagement that we uh, now see. Um, well, I think we've, 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 we've asked a lot of questions. There were some questions in the chat that I saw, but I think we've covered the, the gist of them. I, I would just really ask a, a final question for our panelists. And um, it's a question in which COVID and uh, global mental health are uh, featured. And this is the question. Many of us around here, Vikram, Shaoshui Yuan, Shui Feng, myself, uh, I don't know, Cindy, if you've been involved in this, have been involved in a big way in global mental health. We've had, we had the World Mental Health Report here. We had, we had the Out of the Shadows meeting when Jim Kim was head of the World Bank, et cetera. What do you, what do you see now in terms of the future? for global mental health. Are we going to have the same experience we had, which was referenced uh, by, by someone, uh, uh, we had when AIDS, the AIDS activism came along. 
at the beginning of the 90s, which seemed to displace uh, global mental health off the, uh, off the list of priorities. Will COVID do that and return the list to the infectious diseases? Or do you see a big jump in where global mental health is going? And if so, what is it in global mental health that will benefit from this? Is it attention to the ordinary everyday anxiety and depression that is, as Peter Tyra says in the World Psychiatric uh, Journal, that is just a rational response to the dangers of the situation we're in? Or is it attention to the severe problems, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, severe depression, suicide, substance abuse? Where, where do we see it going? Let's start with Vikram. Well, yeah, I, it's hard for me to be sure on this, so I'm going to give you my prediction. My prediction is, unfortunately, that we are going to see another uh, AIDS-like scenario. I think if I just look at the conversations on COVID-19 itself, Arthur, the emphasis on very narrow biological uh, issues, whether it's the immune system or the vaccine, and completely, almost completely ignoring the, the social, cultural, economic, and political dimensions, I think is, is, is not a good sign for me because mental health can never really be con constructed in that way. And I think I worry about this domination of the biological uh, narrative. I accept it, by the way, I'm not rejecting it. I'm just thinking it's too singular, too focused on just the one, and I, that doesn't bode very well for mental health. Well, let me just say as an aside to that, Vikram, I can see the influence on you of Harvard already. It's terrific. And now, uh, uh, Shui Fung, how about you? Where do you see global mental health as a leader of global mental health? Where do you see it going? Are we going to fall back or uh, go forward? Uh, it's hard to say. You know, I hate to pick the wrong side. You know, uh, you know, it's always about the money, priority, and the power. So uh, if you could, in China, there's a saying, the money goes with the infectious diseases. So if the uh, COVID-19 is so pandemic, so uh, everywhere, so maybe the money could give to mental health will be deducted. But if we could connect mental health issues with COVID-19, we could allocate our money, our fund. Yeah, so that's interesting. So let's just remember, that today in the area of uh, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, that there's a general feeling that the major model we've had of Alzheimer's is wrong. And what people are turning to now is herpes simplex one, uh, type one virus and Alzheimer's, a possible source of Alzheimer's. This may be a new era for looking at the relationship of viral disease and schizophrenia, schizophrenia viral disease and bipolar disease. What do you think, Shashwai Yuan? Um, as we all know that the uh, United States has been always the leader of global health, including global mental health. I'm now a little bit worried about the, the uh, uh, politicals in the United States. After four years of war, um, Trump administration are you, um, as the United States still has the um, passion to global health? So this is my question. I'm a, yeah. a little bit older. It's a great question. Thank you for that. That's, that is a great question too, turning it right around. 
How about Cindy? How about you? What, what's your you're a younger member of this group? You're you're really just beginning on your research career. You got so many years ahead of you and great studies. What do you what do you think is going to be the future? Uh, so it's interesting that you asked this question because I, I was just sending a couple of emails to Vikram today. I don't know if he's checked his email about where do we fit in this area. Um, we have all these epidemiolo epidemiologists who are creating these models and like, where, where do, we, do we fit there? Where do we fit? Um, and also does prevalence even matter? Because I can generate all sorts of rates, but does it matter in the end? You know, so what kind of prevalence actually matters? The symptoms, suicidality. I mean, I think those rates are actually really increasing and yet is that still enough for us to, to get those resources, right? To, to compete for those resources. So. Um, that, that's my, that, that's my takeaway is I, I just don't know, because I, like I said, I can generate all these numbers and it seems compelling to me, but I'm not sure if it's enough. So let's end on this uh, count. I, I think we can say the following, that the big problem in global mental health across nations has been the gap between the burden of disease and the amount of attention and funding put into the area. And what we've just heard from experts from the United States, India, and China, is that maybe the future will also be problematic in terms of this gap between the, the great need for mental health services and the amount of attention and support given to it. With that, let me turn things over to our outstanding uh, acting director of the Fairbanks Center, Winnie, for your closing comments. I want to thank all of you for the insights and um, your sharing with me and the audience that all the countries, actually even in the United States, before COVID has serious problems and deficiencies in its mental health system. So the cost to mental health is great as a result of COVID, but we also want to end with a positive note that this might actually encourage the government to pay attention to it. And I would argue that not just providing more money, but also how to spend money effectively to look at new models of care that can be accessible to the majority of people. And uh, in the future, if we have another pandemic, we will be much better cushioned and protected against it. Well, and I really hope beyond today, um, the experts here and beyond, we should collaborate and we should resurrect what has been produced in the last set of papers between China and India to see we can move it to next step that is actions beyond the papers. So thank you very much for all of you. And um, for those of you in the US, good night. And for those of you in China, you have another day ahead of you. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you all. Thank, thank you all. you all. Thank you all. Bye bye.